WV Uncommon Place. This podcast is a variety podcast that houses numerous series to cover mental health, empowerment, podcast framework, and various intimate series to get to know the hosts. Along with occasional movies reviews and dives in pop culture with our event podcast episodes. The Uncommon Place digs into bringing guests on that stories don't fit the mold and are very different. WV stands for the great state of West Virginia and every quarter we cover something in West Virginia. Stacy and myself JR are your hosts so please come along for this venture to Uncommon Place. Welcome to West Virginia and Commonplace. Today I have with me Brent Cassidy. Brent, please tell everybody why you're here, who you are, and the show right now has the spotlight on you, so take it away. <laughs> well, the reason why I'm here is uh, I love your podcast, JR, and my story is uh, one that's kind of like a roller coaster ride. I wrote a book called Nightmare Success, um, Loyalty, Betrayal. Life Behind Bars, Adapting and Finally Breaking Free, a memoir. And I've got a podcast that's called Nightmare Success In and Out, and I actually inmate, I actually interview ex-inmates. And uh, the common thread is, is that all of us have gone to prison. I, I was sentenced to five years at Leavenworth. And so this podcast that I do is about hope, inspiration, overcoming. What happens when your worst fear becomes your reality? How do you adapt? How do you survive? And Everybody's got a different story on how they do that, but it's um, it's always interesting, always interesting. And um, my story was, uh, like I said, it was a roller coaster ride. I don't know if you want me to go ahead and start. Yes, go ahead, on go that, into it, Jr. All right. So as as a kid, I thought that I was growing up like normal. I lived in Springfield, Missouri, which is like in the southwest part of of Missouri, kind of a Norman Rockwell type town, not too big, not too small. One of those things where I was a kid, you, you know, you rode your bike until it was dark. You had a field to play on. We had a creek and life was really good. And then something kind of weird happened in my life where my dad, who was kind of this bigger than life character in, in, in my world, you know, always your dad is somebody that is a kid. You're like, wow. Well, he really was a wow. He, he was, uh, he, he, he won the state championship in high school. He was valedictorian. He went to uh, be a D1 athlete uh, in college playing basketball. He went to law school, graduated number one in his class, zoomed out of that, won some big cases, and got into business. And he was a big deal. And I was like, wow, what a deal. Well, one night, as I just said, my life seemed really, really normal, just loving life as a kid. I was about 14 years old. A little bit unusual because I was six foot one in eighth grade. So everybody else, was, I was like a seven <laughs> footer, you know, everybody else was like five foot five, but loving sports, loving everything, loving my school. And dad calls my brother and I in one night and says, uh, boys, um, I've gotten myself into a heap of trouble here and uh, with the bank that I own. And I told them they could go run the government. I'd run the bank and it really took a spiral from there. And he said, I, I think, to get this behind us, I'm going to plead guilty. And, and, uh, I was, I couldn't even like his mouth was moving. Well, wasn't hearing it. It was like, what in the world? What? This is the, like the, the guy I idolized, the guy that's the golden child of this magic touch. And then when it came back, I, I, the words came back and he said, we're moving. 
we're also going to boot to St. Louis. <laughs> oh my God, what a night, what a night. There, there couldn't have been any more change that went on in my world at that point. And so we did, we moved. Uh, Dad got six months in prison and we moved into a new neighborhood. And there's always something that's kind of weird when that happens because you know, when you move into a new neighborhood, it was summertime, you know, and everybody's wondering, like, is is the wife, is she, or is she a widow? Is she divorced? Where's the dad? And so we kind of crafted a story that dad's working out of town. And it was kind of true. Dad had a prison job out of town. So we, and then we went to go and visit him every, every weekend. And there was a couple of things that came to my mind, JR, when I, we drove up that place. It was called Prison Road, Marion, Illinois, <clears throat> Marion Prison. The first thing was, I can't believe we're this family. I can't believe we are all of a sudden, all this normal world stuff, and we're driving into Prison Road, going to see my dad in prison. And the second thing was, when my dad came out, you know, I was worried, like, what's he going to look like? How's it going to be? And all that we had a really good visit. He connected with some people. And so I wasn't worried about that. But when I left, I thought, this will never happen to me. I will never, no matter what happens in my life, this will never happen to me. So the question is, how does the one thing that I said that would never happen to me at 47 years old, I end up standing at the wow. gates of Leavenworth. Now, let me prison. ask you something real quick. So your dad gets out of prison. So let's go back. Cause you, you put about a good 20 years in between that the 20 years leading up to you actually getting in trouble. What was life like, uh, you know, the next yeah. 10 years after he was out of jail, because, you know, some people are out of prison. Some people get a mentality from prison. Um, I, I've had family members that go in and come back and they're a little bit more savvy in certain areas and they lose a little bit of sophistication in certain areas. Sure. Like some that, some that were business savvy yeah. come out street smart. And with the street sense, it moves them into other areas that go from being, you know, we have rural areas and stuff like that. They go more into the urban areas and things go different for them. And some of them lead, have led, led productive lives. And I've had a few that, you know, they've expired because of some of the choices they made. But what happened different with your sure. father when he got out? What was the, the last, the 10 years? Well, it was, it was interesting. That's a good question, Jared, because my dad got out of prison. and. It was incredible how he hit the ground running as fast as he did. There was one business that survived. And the reason it survived is it wasn't in his name. He put it in a family trust. It was my mom and my name, and my brother's name. And it was a very unsexy company, but it, it really served a need at that time. It, it was uh, prearranging your funeral. So you were taking care of your funeral in advance deciding, you know, what, what you were going to buy, how you were going to, and you froze that cost. You figured out, you know, your, your pallbearers, your music and everything else. So when the kids had to take care of this, it was all taken care of. Uh, it became a very popular um, idea and it grew. So he got out of prison and he started creating this company. And as he named it National Prearranged Services, and he only represented one funeral home at the time. So you can guess that he had big plans. Um, so it started growing, and I came in ten years later to this business as is when he had started it, and I got out of college. I was going to be a trial attorney, a political science theater, and had it all figured out. 
I I did pretty good in school. I graduated with three point four, but Jr. When it got to like a standardized Price. test, I I registered like a, on the dumb 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 scale. I just couldn't couldn't do a standard. You give me an essay, gosh, I love essays, but man, I couldn't do standardized test. I had a real problem with the LSAT, so I had to figure out a plan B for myself. And I had done sales over the summer when I was in college, and I thought, well, maybe that's what I should do because I'd always played sports. I thought, you know, great thing about sales is it's got you got your own scoreboard. You know, you either win or lose, you close it or you don't. Doesn't matter how old you are, you can always be the best because of who you do, who who, who you sell to, and how you do it. And if you're good, doesn't matter. It's like getting out and doing a pickup game on a basketball court. So I kind of like that. Felt natural to me. So. I went to my dad and I said, dad, I'm thinking about maybe coming into the business, but I said, my problem is I don't want to be with somebody that you got a big shadow. And I said, being, you know, Doug Cassidy's son in St. Louis, I'd like to just go somewhere and pass fail and see if I'm going to get at this. Is there anywhere I could go? And he said, well, yeah, Brent. He said, we just opened up a place in Austin, Texas. Uh, we got a funeral home down there. It's a new state. And I was, man, I'll take it. That sounded great. I was like, 22, 23 years old, I was all over that. Well, so it, it happened, JR, that I happened to be pretty good at that game and grew a big uh, team down there. And we won all the contests and things. And, and so it w- I kind of fit into my, my rhythm and groove of, of this. Dad, on the other hand, he didn't really care too much about the sales and operation stuff, but we had uh, – two companies. We had a sales company and we had grown into an insurance company. So the sales company, um, you know, sold those contracts and then it was funded uh, when somebody died by an insurance policy. He loved that side. I liked the other side. So it worked great. So we would continue to grow. We went from three states to 22 states. Uh, My brother came in in the nineties. We had a family idea that uh, at the time was very cutting edge to the funeral and, and cemetery business. And we had found a cassette tape of my grandmother who had died three years prior. And, and Tyler came down with me and said, listen to this. And it was my grandmother. And she was just talking and to my mom and he hit the play button and there it was. And we said, wow. And it's something that she's only been gone for three years, but you, you lose the inflection in somebody's voice, the way they laugh and talk. And we talking about, isn't it amazing? Like when Queen, Queen Elizabeth dies, you know, a few weeks ago, you expect the highlight film. You expect all the things. But we don't have that of our grandparents, our uncles, our aunts, our parents. And we decided at that moment at that kitchen table, why don't we become the filmmakers of everybody else? Well, that led us into a company that was called Forever Enterprises. And we uh, created a production um, part of the company uh, that made films. Uh, we started buying cemeteries, and in those cemeteries, we would go and for the people who own the cemetery property, we would give them the opportunity to, to tell their story. And those life stories would then be loaded onto the touchscreen console. So when somebody came to visit the cemetery, they could be introduced to that person that they had or be reintroduced to them to, to introduce them to somebody else. And our whole idea was is that there was an old African proverb that said, when somebody dies, a library burns. And so we really wanted to become a library of lives for the community. This kind of was the sexy company. And this one did get a lot of, of press because like I said, nothing really changed in the last 150 years in that business. So, um, you know, we had Time Magazine and Fortune and Forbes, and uh, eventually we had 
we bought Hollywood Forever Cemetery out in Los Angeles and refurbished that. And HBO came calling and made a documentary called The Young and the Dead. And then Alan Ball came across and said, I think that would make a good TV series. Something about funerals and that, and that became oh, wow. Six Feet Under. My brother le later became a writer on that show. And some of those ideas that went from one to the other to the other, are a lot of what he did. So life was right. really good, right? So <laughs> Kind of like that, that when I was 14 years old, life was really good. And then sometimes you get hit now, right upside the head. Going into and, the suit. Now, yeah. um, I know this because I got in trouble as a, as a teenager. I, I went off and uh, took a car and ended up having to go to juvenile hall for a little bit. And um, it mine was stemmed from my father dying and didn't, not having that, that role. I just wanted attention. Now, when you're after yeah. your dad went to prison, you know, you built this business up. But some part of us, I call it the dark matter, still had yeah. that issue of your dad going to prison and not knowing yes. the extra character of who your father was. Because hip, and I don't and my my, right. my deep question is, did your father sit down at some point and have a candid conversation with you about his activities that he did outside of the home that sent him to prison? Did he ever have that conversation? And, and that, not really. And, and that right there is the one really. I wanted to jump in on because I, I feel like that right there yeah. was a hidden motive to what you're going to tell yeah. us about probably right now, right? Well, I think what happens in that too is, is that you compartmentalize a lot of things. And it was easier for us to, and definitely for him, not to dive into that. You know, he, he was very... Uh, matter of fact, you know, he had a business loan that he made at the bank that he shouldn't have made. And, and the, uh, the tax part of it was is he appreciated a, a mobile home park that he owned instead of depreciate. So as a kid, I was like, I don't even understand what you just said. Um, but I do know this about my dad. He was wickedly smart. And sometimes that can be dangerous because you can understand th some things or do some things and pushing things into the gray area that other people don't. Uh, I would never have been able to think or do some of the things. I don't think that way. And he, he was wired that way. If a statue would come out, he would, he would look at that statue and see like, what are the, the tweaks that can be made to make it work for us as a business? And maybe those legislators might not even thought about that. And who knows if that was legal or not illegal. But the thing that happened was, is that as our company grew, our insurance company used a, uh, a reinsurance company, not to get into any too far into the weeds, a reinsurance company is a much bigger company. And it's like they pay you your commission of the business that you write in your company. You might earn a little bit less, but you get to ride the tails of them taking the liability and uh, you also get to say, hey, I've got, we've got the largest reinsurance company in the world, and, and they're doing business with us, which helps you get more contracts. As that went, we, we got into a little tussle with this gigantic company that was the size of a country. And they came and said to our attorney, my dad, that, hey, listen, this new reinsurance contract we have, we kind of like to renegotiate it. We got a little backwards in the market. And... Um, the, the response to that was between two attorneys and both maybe with a little chip on their shoulder. Dad was from a little big town of 3,000. And he said, hell no. Doesn't say in the contract, we're not doing it. 
you know, looking back on that, that was the beginning of the spiral. Uh, that went into an arbitration with a company that had a whole lot more assets than we did and a whole lot more money. And our company went into spending a lot of money on discovery and um, all the things with legal expenses, which went from $5 million to seven to nine, and it started to hit our Kaplan surplus. That triggered something, and there might have been something, JR, that was leaked out into these 22 states, which could be easy yes. to do when you're in this, even though this is a sealed proceeding, things can get out. In a regulatory environment, that's not good because in a regulatory environment, it's very uh, monitored. And once that hit that we were in this with this, and if we lost this, we could be put insolvent. So uh, they went into a spin of, they wanted to see everything, wanted to know everything. And quite honestly, there wasn't enough hours in the day. And I can remember this, JR, is that as the sun, one big mistake that I made was, is if you remember when I said, how did this company grow? It wasn't in my dad's name. I own this insurance company. I own these other companies. And I arrogantly did not pay attention to anything that was going on on that insurance side. Because I figured, hey, you know, it's 30 years going where everything is good. Everybody's paying out. It's all okay. Well, the way that it all came down was his dad said, listen, it's got to be you, Brent. Um, I can't go talk to these regulators. Uh, we need a voice to talk about what we're doing. And so I. Uh, oh, I'm still here. Did I lose you, JR? Camera okay. just went out. So. <laughs> um, Okay, that's fine. I just want to make sure we're okay. Um, so I, my dad and our in our uh, trustee, that was also our attorney, said um, it needs to be you, Brent, to go out and talk to these people. And I was like, you know, at that moment, I knew that I had made a huge mistake on not going in and and understanding and getting deeper into this company. But I wanted to do it. I wanted to show my dad I could do it. I wanted to to show the company that I could go out and save the day. So I went and flew around to all these regulatory bodies and, um, and I thought I could save the day. I was, you know, 30 something then and thought I could do whatever. And, and um, we came close a few times, but in the end, it, it got into an investigation with these regulatory bodies. And then it, it, the justice department got interested in this once, uh, the tech, the place we were domiciled, uh, put us in receivership, and away we went into a six-year investigation of anything and everything we we had done and what our business practices were, and um, it was a nightmare, a complete nightmare. I have three daughters and a wife, and um, putting them in that world of having the um, the national media and the print media and everything else that was going through at that time was excruciating. Great. Let me ask you, um, so with, with all this uh, going yeah. on, um, what advice has your dad given you? What is he telling you to do at this time? Well, interestingly enough, that's a good question, JR, because if I had gone through what he had gone through, because you'd asked this earlier about, you know, how did he come to me and talk about the situation that he had been in in the past, 
interestingly, we didn't really have a conversation about that and the and the very similar situation, but much bigger situation that we were in now as a family. Uh, it was always fight and survive, fight and survive, win the day, get it, get, get to the next day. And, you know, it's when you're in an environment like that, when you're fighting, yes, it would have made a lot of sense for us to sit down and talk about, you know, what we're doing, what the consequences could be if this doesn't come out right and what could happen overall. You know, looking back on it now, JR, it's it's so much easier to see how all of this transpired. But as it was going on, I honestly thought each and every time that we were getting close to a resolution that it was going to be solved. And we just never got to anywhere close. It just got bigger. And when it finally came down to it, you know, the they indicted six people. It was my dad, me. It was part of a conspiracy of fraud. There was my dad, me, uh, our attorney, our, our um, CFO, our investment advisor, and my dad's secretary. So there was a lot of people involved in it. Uh, I do remember the night that, you know, this has been going on for six years and I had lost everything. Uh, but my family had stayed really strong. We we had kept the girls abreast of what was going on, and and we one night sat down and said, and the girls said, "Listen, Dad, it was getting close to the time for us to go to trial." And they said, "You know, Dad, with what you're looking at, you know, each one of the the way that the federal government does things, I was I was looking at mail fraud, wire fraud." Anything that we had bought with the dollars over the you know the last thirty years we would consider money laundering, and then I had the charge that carried a five year charge of allowing an ex felon to work in the business of insurance, and I wasn't aware of that one. It was a law that was passed in nineteen ninety four uh, by Congress, and and uh, we had we had done that, no hands down, no argument. Uh, there was no way to defend that. But the way they stacked it is every time you put something in the mail, every time you sent a wire out, every time you bought something, they could stack those charges. So they, those things carried 10 to 20 years. And if I had gone to the trial, I was looking at 948 Ooh. years if I lost on a charge. If you, and, and here's the thing. If you won you know, 40 of those charges and they, they got you on two of them, uh, you're still looking at you know 20 plus years. So my daughters, who were teenagers at the time, said, Dad, we don't want to lose you forever. And I, at this time, JR, I knew that I was tired. I was worn out. It was hard to quit just because of the fight. But I also knew that we had, we had run to the end of the road. And I, I remember the night that we had made this decision. You know, my next day was just to go down and do um, plead guilty and, and plea out. And we were on a family call and it had been agreed that, you know, my mom and Tyler would try to help the girls and Julie with whatever they needed to get through. And, and, uh, and dad and I were, we were going to plead guilty. My kids and my wife were at our vacation home and I was going to go up there the next day. And I was in my own house at the time and started feeling really sorry for myself. 
JR, I was like, you know, it was the first time that it really hit me. Like, what am I going to do? Am, can I live as an ex-felon? Can I go to prison and come out and be somebody that can be somebody as an ex-felon? Do I want to be an ex-felon? My wife and kids, you know, just Julie, who's been a warrior through this whole process, my wife, does she just need a fresh start? And my kids, you know, that are where they are, do they need a dad that's the next felon that's going to be a constant stain anytime I walk into a room? All these things, I started feeling really sorry for myself, started feeling like I was a real drag and became, you know, victimized. And I, I kept drinking. And then I got out a sheet of paper. And I started writing, you know, all the friends that had been supportive and Julie, how much she had been such an incredible wife and the kids, here's your dad's advice. I had another drink and I went down, grabbed the keys to the car, turned the car on in the garage. And I didn't realize, I wasn't even thinking, you know, am I going to go drive into a tree or am I just going to let this thing run? And yeah, I remember, I remember it like it was yesterday as it is today that it was like a bolt hit me. It was like, what in the world, Brent, are you doing? You're the glass half full guy. You're, you're, you're the optimistic. Guy. What a terrible legacy this would leave for your girls and your wife that you quit. You, you, you gave up on the fight of your life. I can't, what am I doing? And it was like that moment, that rock bottom moment, I knew and decided whatever happens here on, I'm, I'm surviving this. And everything that was in front of me was pretty scary. I didn't know what prison. I didn't know how long I was going. I didn't know what, what all the things were that were going to hit me. But I knew that I'm going to make myself and my family proud, my friends, of how I'm going to handle it. And it really changed things for me because that rock bottom moment came to me before I ever stood at the gates of Leavenworth. And it was um, a moment of reckoning, really, for me to really get down to my soul and know that I can, I can do whatever I need to do because that, that's just okay. the way I'm going to do it. It now, was a mindset change. So you decide you accept a plea deal and you have to go to court on this. So you go to court on the plea deal, a plea deal. They, y'all yeah. said, they said a determine uh, to what they're going to ask the judge to give you. And the judge didn't have to give you that. Right. The judge could have done something different, but the judge right. gave you how much time? My my plea bargain was from zero to five years, and I I got at a five year max of my plea. And you know, I mean, Jr. took I think all the breath and 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 air went out of me when she said that, and it was like everything moved and started moving in slow motion. That five years is is a long time. I know ten years is a long time, twenty years is a long time. When we started thinking about you're going away, losing your freedom and connections to what you're used to. Uh, it's, a, it's a hell of a thing to swallow. But um, the next step really was, you know, preparing myself for what I was going to do, you know, how I was going to do it. And um, I remember the day that I was, well, actually, the night before, Julie and I had, had driven up, and the, the sun was going down, and I could see. I, oh, I find out later, you know, two, two, two months later, it just shows up in the mail. This is where you're going to prison, and it was Leavenworth, and I knew that yeah. one because I hear, you know, everybody's heard that Leavenworth. It's like that's that's a place that people know, 
in movies and stuff. So I remember the night the sun was going down. I could see the prisoners walking the, the barbed wire fence on the sidewalk. And you could start to see a little bit on the inside with the lights on and prisoners kind of mulling around. And I was thinking in my own mind, I didn't say this to Julie, was like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm going to be in there tomorrow night. I'm going to be walking that fence tomorrow, and I'm not going to be doing it for a day or a week or a month. I'm going to be doing it for years. And it was just such a, a deep thought of I've got to figure this out. And I, the next morning, I remember we went, I hugged my wife and Tyler and my brother and my mom and told them how much I loved them. Got out of this cold Kansas January 14th day, uh, wind blowing, took my coat off because I didn't want them to have my coat. And I'm standing at that gate and it was like, I knew that everything behind me, everything I loved and everything I knew was behind me and everything that I was standing in front of was the unknown and I was going to have to figure out how do I adapt and survive inside prison. This. Now you you got charged with something, but this, the charge that you got to me, when you, if you pay it, if, and this is for the listeners here, listeners, if you pay attention to everything that was stated, the charge that you actually took was the one for hiring a felon. Correct. No, I got, I got rolled into the whole thing. I got, yeah, I got rolled in. It, it was considered a conspiracy, and my charges were, and the one that I, if I would have gone to trial too, the one thing, Jr., I couldn't have gotten away from was, it, you intent uh, gets muddled into if you have a position of authority, which I did. I was an owner and an officer, even though I didn't know in 1994 that Congress passed a law that that an ex-felon couldn't work in the business of insurance. I had the responsibility to know that. So if that went to a jury, those are the instructions that are given. So that one was a dead ringer that right. I so couldn't get away from. Oh, sorry for interrupting. You know, the, with, that with that specific charge, no, go ahead. did you and your dad have a discussion about that at all? Well, the only discussion we had was neither one of us knew about it. Neither the attorneys that we had, the New York attorneys or the local attorneys in St. Louis. So um, it just escaped everybody. But when you start dealing with the United States government, and there's nothing more intimidating, JR, than seeing the United States of America versus your name. And you, that's when you really know what you're up against. You know, it's like I had a, a guy that was on my podcast that said, you know, you, this is like having your beer softball league getting the opportunity to play the Dodgers. You can play them, but am I not? Right. work out as well as you want and that's kind of what it is when you're dealing with the federal government is is that when you get into and i'm not saying um that we weren't sloppy and we didn't do things wrong i'm just saying that when you get into that world um you know 97 percent of the people who get indicted plea so there's a lot of reasons and a lot of ways that uh you have to come to grips with what you're going to do and how you're going to do it when you are personally put into a position to figure out what happens with the rest of your life. Mine was as to plea. Mine was as a family decision to, to stop and roll and go. And, but if you, you know, and Jerry, you're, you're kind of circling around the father son thing, you know, um, 
I often wonder, you know, because I have three daughters, you know, would I have put my oldest daughter in a position to go and be in that regulatory fight when the, when the, when the house was burning, knowing that I had gone to prison before and knowing what the outcomes could be. I struggled with that a little bit because, um, you know, dad, I, you know, idolized and I, uh, I, the reason I struggle with it is I think that he honestly thought that if we were going to get over the hump of this thing, that he really did believe that I would be the best person to go because he couldn't and, and speak for us. So, you know, as I look back on all that, um, I don't think I always felt love for my dad. He he was my biggest cheerleader in life. Um, he also was a guy that could get the best out of you. You know, he he. I think that's why he was successful. He could find somebody's talents and use it and and get them to do more than they maybe could have done on their own. I wouldn't be the person I am today without having the dad that I had. Uh, was was my dad a perfect man? Oh God, absolutely not. Am I a perfect person? Absolutely not. But um, we struggled and went through something as a family. And I think dad and I were scarred by that with our own relationship of, you know, how did this happen? Should it have happened? And, you know, the consequences of what happened. And um, the strange thing about that is, is when I got out of prison, um, I had three years probation. And when I got off probation, uh, people have given me like Tito's vodka and whatever else. And I thought, you know what? My dad had just, my dad had just served his time and he had gotten out of prison. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to call my dad and we'll just have a, that talk. Look, kind of the talk you're talking about, JR. And so I called him and he didn't answer the phone. I thought, well, that's, you know, he could be busy or, you know, just not answering the phone. The next phone call I got was, is that he was on, um, home confinement, they did a wellness check on him. And I got a phone call from the police officers oh. that he had died. So interestingly enough, we, as the moment that JR, I thought that he and I might sit down and just have that, you know, talk, um, oh. it never happened. So it's just interesting how yeah, it all works. It is out. interesting. And the one thing that I, that I like about your story, and it's a gem inside this episode and audience, please, whenever, if you listen to it on, uh, or if you're listening now, or if you're um, going to listen on Twitch, or you're listening on the actual podcast, the gem inside here is that no matter what happened, you and your dad and your family kept a great resolve with each other, because you all could have get split up and become very nasty yeah. and angry. So let's dive into your prison stage. You do five. You do five years. Yeah. Um. And, and what mm -hmm. what I want to do with this is, is there's something we pay homage to. There is a um, news magazine called 2020. 2020 was the greatest news magazine of mm -hmm. my day and age. Uh, you had John Stossel for comedy. You had Diane Sawyer for uh, some good questions. She kind of led into the greatest interviewer of our time, Barbara Walters. Barbara Walters, yeah, great show. Uh, could make you personable. Um, she could make you intriguing to someone, or she could just slam you down and have people turning off the TV exactly at 11 o'clock. So, Brent, real quick, yeah. uh, with parts of prison, let's go and do some 2020 questions. Let's get a little bit of deeper into who you are, if you don't mind. Okay, so here's my first question for sure. you. The first day you're uh, in prison, 
the gate closes behind you you go through shower they check you they make sure everything's you know you're not smuggling in anything mm -hmm. and uh you hit general population not worried about the time before you hit general population but you hit general population what is the first thing you do in general population when you're in there well here's the, here's the interesting thing about entering into prison because it, some of it's like what you see on TV and some of it's not. Do they gather around and look at the new people coming in? Absolutely. I did that too. Cause I mean, your, your curiosity is, is who's the new guy coming in. The thing that I found JR is I, you know, they give you your stuff and, and all your bedding and everything. And I was led up by another inmate and it was his job to take me to where my place was. So I, I went, up to this place that was called A2, and it was a big open room, like an army barracks, and there was a whole bunch of bunk beds, and so everybody had a bunk bed, a locker, and a plastic chair. In the middle of that uh, bunker or barrier, you had um, a bathroom. You had three three showers, six sinks, uh, three toilets, three urinals. So I walked past that and I'm just checking all this out and everybody's, you know, checking out the new guy. And so I come to my bunk and I've got this guy that, that I realize is going to be my, my bunk mate. And he's a short Hispanic guy. He looks like a boxer. And he says, well, let me help. He said, what's your name? I says, Cassidy. He said, I'm Romo. He says, all right, let's get you set up. And I'm like, what? He says, well, we got to, you got to make this bed military style because they, they, the warden comes and it does a bed check on it every Friday. You got to learn how to do this. So we start checking, we start making this thing military style. And, and he's, he opens up the lock. He says, oh my gosh, don't put anything in there. We're going to clean that out. And I'm just following. And he says, you know, you don't look like you've ever been in a place like this before. He said, come with me. He said, I'm going to interview. He said, I'm going to introduce you to somebody, one of you. So I go across the way same place we're in and there's this guy that's sitting there and he says Clark Cassidy he's one of you take care of him getting set up and I find out that Clark is somebody and this is so hard to believe he's eight years older than me but went to my high school and we both played basketball <laughs> at the same high school and so I'm like how weird is this and within about 30 minutes Jr. And this is something that's really important for people to remember whenever they in a, enter a situation that they're not sure about it, it's an unknown. Nothing, I mean, nothing is as bad as your mind makes it out to be, not even prison. What I had in my mind standing at that gate when I was getting ready to walk through, and it's bad walking through, you feel like the freedom's just coming off of you. Every time the door slams behind you, you feel like you feel that, that and that's a horrible feeling. But the fact that I found people in there within the first 30 minutes that wanted to help me and wanted to get me set up uh, surprised me. It probably was one of my biggest surprises about prison was there were some good people in there that for whatever reason they had made a mistake, but there were some good people that I met in prison. But within that first 30 minutes, I was like, oh, my gosh, I think I'm going to be okay. I've got Romo here. It seems like he knows everybody and everything. I got Jim Clark here. 
that's eight years my senior that we went to the same high school and played basketball in the same crazy. And then, you know, Clark told me, Hey, you can make a phone call to your family um, in the, in the counselor's office. So they know you're okay. I went down. It was an emotional call because I, I just, it was, you know, all of a sudden the, the counselor dials my number and my family is on there, the line. And I told Julie and the girls, I said, I'm going to be okay. Don't worry about me. I'm going to be all right. Got some people here helping me out. And from that point forward, JR, there's bad things that happen in prison. I got in a fight the first two months I was there just because I just kind of forgot where I was. I said something that's a joke that you would, and I was working at this food warehouse, which was a great job. And there was a guy that uh, kind of thought that I had kind of invaded his turf a little bit. I got along really well with the CEO, uh, the correctional officer that, that was looked over our, um, uh, the food warehouse. And, and I had become the clerk uh, for the food warehouse. And I, it, for this guy, I had invaded his world. He'd been there for four years and he just didn't like me much. And we were joking and they were joking about me, you know, how I was learning how to, to drive the forklift. And I said something to him kind of, and he came at me and just started roundhouse, you know, to hit. And I put my arms up and I didn't know if he was joking or if this was serious. And once I saw the, the look in his eye, I realized he was serious. And when I was walking back that day and I didn't get harmed and everything got pulled off. And, but I realized I'm not <laughs> I'm back at, in my place, hanging out with my friends. This is different. I got to be very cautious, uh, cautious about how and what I'm doing. And here's the thing that I did, JR, I created five survival tools okay. for me that really worked for me in prison. And I think they work really well outside of prison too, for life and business. The first one that I had was, is that if you get into a new situation, humble yourself, humble yourself, look around, see who's getting it right. Who are the people that are making things work the, the way that you want to make it work? And then go talk to them and ask them how they're doing it. That really worked well for me in the first few days and weeks that I was there because I started to get introduced to the right people with the right routines, with the right jobs. And it made me feel more like me. The second thing that I did was, is that, you know, the movie Shawshank Redemption is such a effective movie for so many reasons, but especially when you go to prison, you identify with it a little bit more. But one thing that was so effective in that movie was, is that Andy Dufresne, who was, he was in that uh, prison, he would chip every night in his cell to chip towards his freedom. And he did it for 19 years. Every day he would let that wall out into the yard, they had holes in his pockets. And that was his daily victory. And he had what you called, he called Zaywan Taneo. Zaywan Taneo was the bluest of the blue waters. It was the whitest of the white sands. It was the old boat he was going to fix up to take his friends out on it. And he's going to have the little inn where everybody could come over. That lived in his mind. It created his world, and that's what kept him chipping through that wall every night for 19 years. Everybody's got to have their Zaywantaneo. Everybody has to have something, even in prison, that keeps you being you so that you don't lose you and you don't become part of the fabric of what you don't want to be. So it's very important, and it was very important for me to 
keep that in front of me, keep my goals in front of me. I wrote down goals of things I wanted to accomplish in prison, and I kept that in front of me. The third thing was win the day, one day at a time, unfair things happen, move on and make a difference regardless. And my daughter made a calendar for me every year that I was in prison and it had the family picture above and then the, you know, the calendar part at the bottom. And every night when the lights went out, I would write in that little box and I would look for the win for the day. I had to find a win for the day. What happened that I, I could say there was a win. If I had a bad day, I went all the way down and let myself have that bad day. But what my, my hack was, I never let myself fill in two boxes of bad days. Never two boxes side by side. I had to find a win for the next day. It's like Jack Nicholas has always said, you know, you can make a bad shot. Just don't make two bad shots in a row because it really messes up the hole. If you do that in prison or in life, if you get two bad days and you don't pull yourself out and look for a win, that can turn into a week. That can turn into a month. That can turn into a year. That can turn into your life. So I consciously made sure that I didn't, and I, I didn't want to fall into that dark world where they say, you know, you get busy living, get busy dying. There were two types of prisoners. There were people who gave up, people that were victims, and there were the people who were surviving, the people who were trying to make it work for themselves. I always wanted to stay on that other side, try to make it work for yourself, try to make your world something that you still keep feeling like yourself. The fourth thing was learn from your mistakes. They don't define you but they do make you a heck of a lot wiser. That was a big one for me. I think our world right now and our people that are growing into their jobs and growing into their, their way about life, everybody's worried about making mistakes. Every business book that you read, everything that you hear is about people making mistakes and they grow from that. They learn from that. Sure. They become better from that. And that's one of the things that you can't be afraid to do. And whether it's, you know, getting into something new and you say, I don't know if I know, just step into it. Step into the unknown because once you step, you get a little bit more confidence. Step again and get even more confidence. Step a third time, you're like, hey, I'm getting into this. And the fifth thing, the fifth thing JR, was, and it's probably the biggest thing for me, is don't give in, don't give up. Keep being yourself regardless of the circumstances. Otherwise, you will lose what makes you you. And, and that was so important to me because my biggest fear of going into prison the one that I feared most was getting institutionalized and becoming so much part of that world that I feared the free world. And there were so many guys that got so comfortable with their ugly routines and their ugly world that that became the warden of their freedom. And they couldn't, there were so many guys that you would see JR that would, they get close to the door because you get kind of anxious, you know, the six months, the eight months that, you know, you're getting close to the door to get out. They would catch another charge. Because they were more comfortable with the ugly uh, prison and, and the people and the places and the things that they were doing in there because that had become their routine than being afraid of freedom. And so many people, now that I've been out, I see they're institutionalized all over the place. You, you've got people that have a bad job. They have a bad marriage. They had a health crisis. They had this or they had that. And what happens is, is they become a prison in their own mind and they can't step to what will set them free. And there's the interesting quote that I think is in the Shawshank Redemption movie where Red says, when you first come in, these walls 
are to hold you in. And then the longer you're here, these walls become and put their arms around you and give you comfort. That's what, that's what you don't want. You can't, can't have that. Cause that's, that's, that's when you've lost yourself. And those five things, JR really kept me steady uh, in a way that I don't know if I wouldn't have had that, if it would have worked for me the way that it worked for me as I was walking through that whole process. One thing I can tell you though, is I had a wonderful family and a wife that should get an award. She came to see me every weekend. It was a four and a half hour drive. My girls were at university of Missouri and they would, you know, one or the other would come along, you know, whoever she could get rally up out of bed for a young, you know, the college kids. But I got to see my family. We got to stay plugged in. And one of the saddest things that I experienced in prison was that all of these guys that I knew that I was with, that I thought were good guys were losing that, you know, they would, you know, lose some pounds and know that they had a visit and the wife came with divorce papers or, you know, just time after time, there was just that total loss, that total darkness of being in a bad place, but also having the loss of everything that you love. I didn't have that. And I have a lot of gratitude, a lot of gratitude for the fact that I didn't lose that because as I got out of prison, it's the thing I cherish the most. I've, uh, my girls have done great. You know, they're 30, 28, and 25 now. My wife is just a rock who was the glue for everything. I've got two twin uh, grandsons now that, you know, it's all the good stuff. And um, the biggest thing that I want people to know is, is that you can pretty much survive anything. And going back to, you know, what you have to do, one is, is don't let your mind trick you because nothing is as bad as your mind makes it out to be. And it's always, it's always scary to step into the unknown. Even if it's a good unknown, it's always scary to step into, but it will make you better and it'll free you to wherever you okay. want to go. Now, uh, lastly, leading up to this, because uh, we've had a pretty great conversation. You've told us a lot. Um, tying this all together. So you get out of prison. Um, you got to get back into the work world. You got to tell your story. You have to account for what you have gone through. Tell us what that process was like and how it's led you to what you were doing today. I've been, and when I talk about gratitude, I had people uh, that helped me. You know, I had friends when I came out that were willing to, to give me a job, give me an opportunity. Uh, I had a, a guy, um, Don Davis and, and Mike Shanahan that, that, uh, when I got out, they let me walk right back into an opportunity, and, and I was able to to do that. Then I was able to move to another opportunity, real estate-wise, with Jose Ponce and real estate company, and he allows me to use what I learned, my life experience of you know how do you how do you create a business for yourself, and I do that with the agents. I work with them on you know how do you take your business. Uh, not just to be a salesperson, but to create a business. How do you create systems and processes so that you're not on a roller coaster? So I love doing that in the past. And the, 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 the greatest part of it is, is that I'm able to do what I love. I was able to write a book, uh, start a podcast, Nightmare Success In and Out, and talk to people and give them a platform of how they got through when their worst fear became the reality. 
how do you survive? So I'm, I have found a, a passion and it, and I look at it, JR, is that time that I hit the rock bottom. Going from that moment on, my mindset was one that getting back into society, absolutely, I was concerned about, I'm an ex-felon, how am I going to be received? When I hit the play button for my podcast, coming back out into the world, how are people going to receive me? What will it be like? When I, you know, publish the book, how will people receive me? I was scared, you know, of what that would be because your immediate thought is it's not going to be good. So when it is good, it gives you that fuel to to always follow whatever that that gut instinct is and just know that you've got to grit it. Okay. Got to step it. Now, real fast, one thing that we like to do on the show, and it's a little bit of nostalgia, we have this thing called the shameless plug. The shameless plug is a way for the audience to connect to you. And one amazing thing about any guest that is on the show, for any new listeners we have today, um, everything about Brent Cassidy will be in the show notes. You will be able to link, find him across whatever platforms his podcast is on. Hopefully, they're on every single pl- platform that mine's on and it, every other podcast. And you'll be able to catch up with him about his book and if you need to get in touch with him about other things. But real quick, Brent, please give us a shameless plug of where everybody can meet and greet you on the internet and can keep going along with you in the world. Yes. Okay. So you can find my podcast, like you said, um, JR, uh, Nightmare Success In and Out, uh, Apple, Spotify, Odyssey, all, all of them that are out there. Um, and my book can be found on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. My, if you'd like to leave me a message at brentcassidy.com, love that. Um, and uh, I'm on uh, no, no, no tricky stuff. I'm Brent Cassidy on Instagram and Brent Cassidy on Facebook. And I've just started doing TikTok, which is a whole new world. So I'm easy to find. Uh, I'm just, I just spell <laughs> my name funny. It's a uh, yeah, yes, S-I-T-Y. Right, so no, no David Cassidy over there. And once again, I am JR from West Virginia and Commonplace. And over here at West Virginia and Commonplace, we strive to have guests on that break the norm, people that actually go above and beyond or come from an uncommon place and come back to a, a common place, and then they make that place uncommon. So once again, I'm your host. You can find me across all medians. Um, I love when we can do these live shows on Twitch. It's amazing uh, when you have another podcaster with you, someone that has strong values and someone that can account and has responsibility and accountability for his actions. That's my testimony for him. The thing is, is that it's very hard in life to let people know about the true accounts of what happened to you because so many times in society and reality and augmented reality, people want to make things up. People want to give a, a, a utopia when it's not a utopia. Bad things happen to good people and good people do bad things and vice versa. And it all comes full circle. Um, definitely make sure you check out Brent Cassidy. Definitely make sure you check out his podcast. And um, lastly, Brent Cassidy, I need you to do this favor for the world and for anyone that doesn't know you today. What is your mission statement? And let that mission statement ring true. Whatever I do in life, and I've told my daughters this, whatever you do, Whatever I do, I want to make a difference for the good. And on that note, West Virginia Commonplace is tuning out. And one last thing I want to say here for the for anybody out there. It doesn't matter what happens to you in life. It doesn't matter how it happens to you. It's how you recover from it and how you go forward. Amen. Please follow WV Uncommonplace on Instagram, Tumblr, Twitter, TikTok, where we have some great content. Facebook, LinkedIn, hit up the merch store at onecommonplace.square.site. 
join the email list from the website and rate, subscribe, and give feedback from your favorite podcatcher. And lastly, thanks for listening and tune into the next episode.